Hello friends, welcome. I am absolutely delighted to have author and speaker Lisa Sharon Harper with me today. And she has written a book that is so remarkable. It's called Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. So my goodness, I just cannot recommend this conversation highly enough. Let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon. And welcome to the Sharon Says So podcast. I am so excited to be joined today by author and speaker, Lisa Sharon Harper. Thank you so much for joining me. I am just thrilled to be here, Sharon. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Uh, I like your middle name. (laughs) You know, a lot of people do. People often call me Sharon and I always say, uh, is my mom around? Because that's my mom's So Lisa Sharon Harper. It's Lisa. Call me Lisa. Absolutely. Oh, well, I read your book with interest and I'm so excited to chat with you about it and to have more people introduced to your work and more people introduced to your message. And it is a message that I am asked about. When I say over a hundred times a day, that's not even an exaggeration. People want to talk about things like this nation's history, topics of race. Mm -hmm. Uh, They want to talk about these issues Mm -hmm. from the perspective of truth and reconciliation and how can we uh, move forward as a nation. And Mm -hmm. I fully believe that there is no moving forward without the truth. And I'd love to hear you talk about that. Amen. Well, thank you so much for, first of all, for bringing me on to speak with your audience and to have relationship with you for this time. And I'm honored and I I 100% agree. And that's the reason why we wrote, why I wrote, sorry, me, myself, and I wrote Fortune. (laughs) It was 30 years of research into my family's story. It's a story that stretches back to 1682 Mm. in the second colony ever on American soil, the colony of Maryland. And it is absolutely about the, the, hierarchies of human belonging that we crafted for ourselves back then and entrenched over the next several hundred years and and that still impact us to this day. So I did not begin the research thinking I was going to write a book. I began the research just to know who I am. As an African-American woman, the reality of our lives in America is that the documentation kind of comes to a screeching halt when you mm-hmm. get toward the, the civil war, beyond the civil war in history. But I was really amazed to find that the documentation on the fortune line of my family didn't. I mean, their names were on the census in 1850 and mm. 1840 and 1700s. And I'm like, what is this? What is what? Because the only way that you could have your name on the census was to be free. Mm -hmm. So this meant they were free. And I did not know that story. I'm like, how do we have free people in our family in Virginia as early as the 1700s, the mid 1700s? Well, come to find out that this family stretches back most likely to a woman named Fortune Game McGee, who was born to Sambo Game and Maudlin McGee. So Sambo is a Senegalese name, and it actually comes from the Wolof people, and it means second son. So From his name, we actually understand a little bit more of his story that we would not have known before. But I realized that this fortune line stretches way back to them. Maudlin entered on this land in 1682, and and they had a child, 1687, Sambo and Maudlin in 1687. 
Maudlin was married. She had an affair with Sambo. Hello, somebody. And they had a girl that they named Fortune, which I just think Mm. is amazing. Wow. But that little girl's body and life and future absorbed the wrath of the very first race laws that were crafted on this land. And what that means is that it impacted every generation that came after. And I started realizing this is not just my story. This is the story of America and race. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be written for that reason. So that's why I wrote Fortune. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I would love to hear more about what uncovering some of your ancestry, your family history, what has that meant to you? Let me just say that there's something about knowing who you are. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't know who you are, you're not anchored. Mm -hmm. If you can only go back to your parents' generation or ask any adoptee, adoptees, live most of their lives with a feeling of unknowing, something that is not known about Mm -hmm. them that they don't know. And they either have to reconcile that or they live their lives searching. It's the very, very similar actually in the African-American experience. And I actually think to some degree in the European American experience, because both of us to some degree had to renounce or let go of our heritage, our people's stories, our cultures, our languages, our norms in order to become racialized on American territory. For Mm -hmm. people of African descent, we were forced to be racialized, forced to be called black. And and blackness doesn't have a history, a people, a language, a, a culture. Blackness was meant to do one thing, to determine according to the law, the law that was passed in Virginia 1662 and Maryland 1664, to determine one thing, 
who can be enslaved, who is not a citizen and therefore can be enslaved. And whiteness was meant to determine one thing, who is meant to rule here. So in order to get the right to rule, the capacity to rule, people of European descent had to renounce their Lithuanian heritage, their German heritage, their German language, their story. They had to disconnect themselves from their own story in order to become white, to get the riches of whiteness on this land. Likewise, people of African descent were forced to let go of their Senegalese language and culture and family story and people's story, and then adopt this new identity, which was only rooted in one thing, lack of power, powerlessness, the, the presumption that you were created in order to cre increase the profit of those who are called white, right? So now that we have DNA research and we have Ancestry.com and 23andMe, and let me, let me tell you, I've done them all. There's a way now that we as people of African descent have the ability to reach back and lay hold of that part of ourselves that was cut off from us when we were first brought here. Mm -hmm. And there is the very first time I ever got the ancestry.com DNA. And by the way, they're not paying me to say this. The first time I ever got my DNA story back from them, I wept. Mm. Sharon, I was the first person in 340 years of my family's story on this land. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that. Centuries of us did not know where we were from. We only knew that we were enslaved. We only knew when I didn't even know we were indentured, but we were indentured in fortune's era. So now I know the story and there's a, a rootedness an anchoring that happens with knowing one story. It was, let me tell you also, when I got the, so I did AfricanAncestry.com as well. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's DNA as well. It's not just a family tree, but it's, it's in fact, it goes back 1000 years. So it asks the question, where were your ancestors on, for me, the matrilineal line 1000 years ago? So mm -hmm. that's like way before enslavement, mm -hmm. you know, when we were in the kingdoms of whatever. And I don't know that. And ancestry.com can't give you that. 23 mm -hmm. Me can't give you that. But they traced my mother's 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 to the thousand years ago to the Hausa people and the Yoruba people of Nigeria. Mm. I wept again. Mm -hmm. And then I did all the research. I you know, found out that the Hausa people are horse people. And then the Yoruba people are storytellers. That, that's where you have the griots. They call them the griots, the story, the keepers of the story. And so there's a way that the knowing is a part of the connection. It's mm -hmm. actually essential to becoming reconnected. I think also, Sharon, there's something about understanding who your family is and how your family got to be the way that it is, right? Mm -hmm. So if your family is full of a particular kind of people like artists or government people or butchers or ran ranchers, like you, you begin to understand who you are mm -hmm. by understanding your family's story because your family's story got you to that place. Mm -hmm. Likewise, you begin to understand some of the brokenness that's in there, or even that you have family brokenness because you're so familiar with it, you don't even realize it's brokenness. But then when you find out, oh, this happened 
to my mother or my dad or my grandmother. And I'm still feeling the reverberations of that three generations later. Oh, that's what happened to me when I, we were researching my father's story, the Weeks family. They were brought to Barbados and they were the, for their first interaction with the West, in other words, brought on a death ship that they called a slave ship, was around 1750. They were brought to Barbados. We know that from Ancestry.com DNA. They can now actually trace the years that people were, were mm-hmm. brought, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. One thing we know is that within one generation, they were all scattered to the wind. They were literally scattered throughout all of the Lesser Antilles, sold into the Lesser Antilles. That's basically all the really, really small Caribbean islands. Mm -hmm. They were in all of the islands. So that is family separation Mm -hmm. in one generation. And that family has basically a, a pattern of separation that still goes on to this day. Also, that side of the family had big, like significant issues with abuse, physical, emotional, mental abuse. And now I understand having researched enslavement in the Caribbean, well, this is where this comes from. I mean, the island where they were just before abolition hit the Caribbean, St. Kitts Nevis, the death rate for people who were brought there was they were dead within one year. So it was that brutal, but my ancestors survived. They were among the strong ones that survived, but that meant that they also absorbed a lot of violence. Mm-hmm. And that violence then was passed down in the families. And that all of a sudden, I understand, I understand my father a lot more. And now we're, we're beginning to learn so much more about the science of epigenetics and mm-hmm. how things like family trauma affect multiple generations down the road. And we used yes. to just sort of think of like, well, that was in the past, You know, and yes, clearly those things are in the past, but science doesn't even fully understand all the ways that it affects the future. Yes. You Mm -hmm. know, part of the research that I did, the question came to mind was, okay, what's the actual vision? What are we working toward here? Because if we only do truth-telling and reparation, that's actually not going to get us that beloved community that Dr. King talked about right? It's not going to get us that space where people are well, where people Mm -hmm. are allowed to and set up to flourish. So that requires healing Mm -hmm. and healing requires forgiveness. Those of us who have lived under the weight of this hierarchy of human belonging and bear the scars of it, how can we heal? And the primary first order of business for healing is to release Mm -hmm. that which cannot be repaired, Mm. that which can never be restored. The people who died, Mm -hmm. communities that have been completely busted up and just are not coming back. When I think to my own family story and my great-grandmother, I think back to the land that was lost My great-grandfather, Hiram, owned a whole block of homes in Mm -hmm. Philadelphia, a block, Mm -hmm. right? After having moved here from from Indiana and here, I am sitting like a block from where he lived, from where his his wife, Ella Fortune, lived actually. And he owned a block of homes that was then taken from him by eminent domain. That was a very common, very common experience among African-Americans 
our communities were busted up. Those are not coming back. Mm -hmm. So we can demand that that be repaid, that that be restored, and we'll be blue in our face till the day we die. And we die with a deficit. So what will it require for us to have, to be released, to thrive, to flourish? Release, forgiveness. Forgiveness means to release, to release the ones who owe us from that debt they cannot repay. It's not possible. And then to turn to God, because I'm a person of faith. And to say, God, you are the one with cattle on a thousand hills, and you are the one who moves mountains, and you are the one who changes the course of rivers. So, ante up. And I believe it would be God's good pleasure to do that. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We've all had those embarrassing moments where maybe you've taken your shoes off and you realize like, oh no, oh no, that is not a good smell. Fortunately, Lumi Whole Body Deodorant is making it so none of us ever have to worry about that again. Unlike certain other products, Lumi is powered by mandelic acid to control odor in a new way. It delivers outrageous 72-hour odor control everywhere one might like to use it. In fact, it was patients' concerns about odor that originally inspired the OBGYN who invented Lumi. Fast forward six years and her game-changing whole body deodorant now has over 300,000 five-star reviews. And it works without using heavy perfumes that mask odor, which I really appreciate. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, which is my favorite, and two free products of your choice, like deodorant wipes or a mini body wash. It also has free shipping. And as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that's like 40% off their starter pack. So use code SHARON at lumideodorant.com. That's L-U-M-E-D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T. Com. Mother's Day is almost here, and I want to take just a quick second to appreciate not only my mom, all the moms out there, but anyone who has taken on the role of caregiver. You do everything for someone else, and now it's time to do something for yourself, and that includes starting with your skin. And I've been using our sponsor OneSkins products for a while now, and I have to tell you, I am really enjoying them. They are very easy to incorporate into my skincare routine. I am really liking the eye cream. And the secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It is the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And they have several studies to back it up. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. 
by focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, one skin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code SHARON at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code SHARON. And after your purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support this show and tell them we sent you. What does it mean to tell the truth? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Truth telling is like wading into deep water. You know, my mom used to sing over me as a child. She sang one of the slave songs, Wade in the Water. This is how it sounds when she, I would lay in bed as a little six year old, seven year old. After we watched Roots, she would sing, Wade in the water. Wade in the water, children. Wade in the water. God's gone trouble the water. And that was a song that was sung on plantations throughout the South whenever someone was going to escape. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a beckoning to them, wade into the water because the dogs can't sniff you in the water. That's the way to get North. That's the way to, to get to freedom. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, those waters are troubled waters. There are mm-hmm. alligators in those waters. If you are in Florida, there are snakes in those waters. If you're in South Carolina or Georgia, but you have to wade into them in order to get free. So telling the truth in America today is like wading into troubled waters, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we have to do it because it's the only way for us to find freedom for us Mm. to be free. So truth telling requires the humility to know that you don't know all that there is to be known that is important to know. It requires the humility to understand that there are those who might know something you need to know. And then it requires seeking and you may not even be ready for it if it does come to you and you're not seeking it, right? So you have to adopt a a posture of leaning in to the process of seeking truth. Mm, I love that. I love the subtitle of your book, which is how race broke my family and the world Mm -hmm. and how to repair it all. Mm-hmm. How do you feel that just from a personal perspective, how has race broken your family? Thank you for asking that question. Well, when you go back to the very first race laws, right? You can go back to, to fortune. Fortune was standing there in a courtroom in 1705 in um, Somerset County, Maryland. And she, the reason she was brought to court is because her father was an enslaved Senegalese man and her mother was an indentured servant. And the very first race law in Maryland was crafted in order to deal with exactly that situation. White women getting together with enslaved black men and having their children. And as it turned out, there were a lot of these women and that was a perceived issue on the ground. Something I learned in my research is that law never just pops up because people think it's a good way to live. It's usually pops up in order to deal with a perceived issue on the ground. The perceived issue on the ground in Maryland was white women marrying actually enslaved black men and having their children. And of course that hit the issue, the, the um, egos of the planter class white men. And so they said, okay, um, we're not gonna have this. And so you know what they did, Sharon? This blew my mind. They said, if any white woman 
marries an enslaved black man, she herself will be enslaved until mm-hmm. her husband's death and her children will be enslaved in perpetuity. Mm. In other words, forever, mm. like a thousand years plus. If their ancestor on their mother's line traces back to a white woman who married an enslaved black man, well, guess what happened after that? That was 1664. They started forcing indentured Irish and, and Ulster Scott women to marry and have children with and enslaved black men. Why? Mm. Because it increased their bottom line, increased their profit margin. They now got free labor in perpetuity from their children. So they begged off of that for, I mean, you know, after a while for other reasons. And then by the time fortune is standing in that courtroom, the way that the law has come down is to say, if your mother is of European descent, you cannot be enslaved. But if your father is black, you will be indentured. So she was indentured. And if you have children while indentured, your children will be indentured for 21 or 31 years, respectively. And her children were indentured and their children were indentured. And so I did a little research to say, okay, why are all of these kids cropping up? And there's never any mention of husbands. And I found that there was like a page of matches with the surnames of the people who indentured fortune and the people who indentured her daughter, Sarah. So how did race break my family? It introduced the separation of mothers from sons and daughters. And so family separation, what does that do? What would it do to your family if you were separated from your daughter or your son forever as a child? them leaving, having been taken as a child. What does that do to someone's psychology? What are, the, what are the pathologies that develop in a family? Now, take the racialized laws that came after slavery. South Carolina passed a law that said that people of African descent can only work in two industries. That's right. I said, what? They passed this law. And why would they do this, by the way? They did this because Reconstruction That era was the era of absolute flourishing for people of African descent. There were more than 2,000 people of African descent that were elected to public offices across the country. They passed this law that said Black people can only work in two industries, either in the fields as field laborers or in domestic service Mm -hmm. as housemaids. And I mean, it even went farther than that, Lisa. It was like, and you must sign a contract for the year's employment and you're not allowed to get out of the contract. And if you try to get out of the contract more, you can be put in prison. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And guess where that prison is? Guess where the prison is? The -hmm. prison is the plantation you Mm -hmm. were just freed from. That's right. Because the constitution permits the slate enslavement of criminals. And so if you can criminalize not having a job, then we can re-enslave you legally. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And you know, the practice was to work people to the bone in those in those quote jails that are actually plantations. Mm-hmm. I visited Sugarland, which is located in Texas. It's right outside of Houston, Texas. I visited a couple of years ago, 2018 for one of our Freedom Road podcasts, actually. And so you can actually, you know, visit yourself through that, through that episode. But 
what I learned was that the common practice on these peonage farms, convict leasing farms, was to work the men until they drop mm-hmm. and to bury them where they drop. In peonage and convict leasing, they just had a steady stream. They didn't have to care for them at all. Right. They, they literally could just pick up another vagrant. And by vagrant, it meant somebody sat on a park bench for too long. Mm-hmm. It's talked on a street corner for to a friend because yes. that was also illegal. Stood on a porch, what, people watching. The amount yeah. of normal human behavior that was criminalized uh, because it was visible to you know the, the white law enforcement Right. For the purpose of being able to obtain more people to work on these plantations, which are actually prisons. I would love to hear your take on people who say that now these legal systems, these structures that were very prevalent, prominent in America, that these have been abolished. We don't have legal redlining anymore. We have integrated schools now. We have the 14th Amendment, we have the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. We have all of these things now that uh, protect all Americans. And so consequently, people need to get over themselves and they need to just like stop talking about race. They need to stop bringing it up. They need to just move forward, just move forward, just move on. Like nobody's being discriminated against anymore, except by a couple of people with white hats. The rest of us are not doing it. Do you agree that we just need to move forward? Do you think the perspective is something different? Where are you on that topic? Well, first of all, think about it this way. If you have an alcoholic in your family, right? And maybe let's say your grandfather was an alcoholic and your alcoholic grandfather lost his job often because he would come to the work drunk or or maybe he, he beat your, your father or your mother, and now you have issues in your family that are passed down to the next generation because of the alcoholic grandfather. And then they have maybe the same issues. Maybe they become alcoholic because you know there's a gene, right? There's, there's mm-hmm. actually a propensity. But there's also social problems, social issues that are passed down because of the abuse that they suffered. So in America... We did outlaw redlining in the 1960s, but it still happened. Our alcoholic parent, that segregationist who wrote into the algorithm that our land would be worth less. But you know what we did when we we said, okay, no, 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 redlining is, is now outlawed. We never gave the value of the land and the wealth that could have been accumulated over those four decades between the writing of that law and the time when it was outlawed, the redlining was outlawed. We never, we never paid it back. Mm-hmm. We never actually gave reparation. We never repaired what that broke. Mm-hmm. And so from that point forward, people of African descent and those communities were now in a deficit. They were now, not only were they behind, they were operating six feet underground, mm-hmm. right? Below sea level mm-hmm. because the, the poverty entrenches gets deeper and deeper with each generation um, that it's not actually filled in. And it's compounded. It's not just one thing. So we can talk about the redlining, but then we also have to talk about the drug wars, mm-hmm. right? So we also have to talk about when um, there's a confession that, was, that took place in 1995. It was Nixon's legislative director 
John Ehrlichman, who confessed that Nixon conceived of the, his drug wars not to deal with drugs. He conceived of this war on drugs, says John Ehrlichman, in order to justify going in and breaking up his two political enemies, Black Blacks. people and hippies. Hippies. Right? So the hippies <laughs> and the Blacks, they were his two greatest foes. So he declared war on drugs and then pumped drugs into Philadelphia, this neighborhood where I'm sitting. They pumped opioids into this neighborhood. And my uncle died of a drug overdose, a heroin overdose, one block away. The wealth gap between white and black in America is tenfold. So black families have one-tenth of the wealth that white families have in America. This is the reason why, y'all. This is the reason why. Somebody didn't sit up in a in a you know, in an office, you know, wringing their fingers and saying, this is what we're going to do. They made choices, policy choices, that the repercussions of those policy choices was the gutting of this community and the gutting of Black wealth and heritage and legacy. And think of the college educations that could have been funded through the wealth that was passed down by these homes if the community did not have crack pumped into it if the city did not literally come in at one point and remove all of the trees, Mm -hmm. removed Mm -hmm. the trees. It's impossible for people to understand. And the health impacts of that. That's right. The true long lasting generational impact of your community is worth so little that you don't even deserve these trees. And when you don't have trees, that means you don't have shade cover which means the streets are hotter, which means potholes come up more and, and um, sidewalks buckle. It also means you don't have the ability to, to filter the air because trees filter the air. Mm-hmm. So all those particulates that are in the air, you end up having higher incidence of asthma, higher incidence of heart disease and diabetes because people don't go out and exercise as much because it's too hot and there's no green space. And we were created, we were created to be in relationship with the rest of nature and rest of creation. Hi friends, it's Sharon. If you enjoyed a recent episode with author and public theologian, Isa Makali, then I have the perfect podcast recommendation for you. No Small Endeavor. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor is an acclaimed podcast series that explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode host and award-winning theologian, Lee C. Camp, brings you thoughtful conversations with artists, philosophers, politicians, and theologians like Hollywood legend Rob Reiner and civil rights hero Reverend James Lawson about what it means to find true happiness and flourish in our everyday life. So don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. And tell them I sent you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I have two things that I really want to make sure that I hit on before we wrap this up. The first one is, what would you say to somebody who feels like um, talking about matters of race, talking about the truth of American history, that has no place in a school? Because oh, you wow. know, this is a very prevalent conversation that is happening all over the country right I now. I do, I know. That we're just making white children feel bad for mm. being white. And that we should just like, everybody is great. Whatever your skin color is good for you. Just be that color. Let's stop talking about it because children are feeling bad. What would you have to say to them? I I say we are, we are destined to repeat history. If we don't know it, we have to know who we are and how we got here. That's all, that's all we're really doing. Somebody talked to me, you know, about critical race theory. And -hmm. I have to say, I learned about critical race theory for the very first time two years ago. And I said, what is this critical race theory thing? I've been teaching on race for 20 years and never even heard of it. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Where is this a secret thing that I've never heard of before? Like, what (laughs) What are we we referring to? Yes. Yes. Well, Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, I did. I mean, I did a little study. I got the books. I said, okay, I'm going to go back to the source and figure out what, what is this thing? And it turns out it's, it's a theory that was literally a theory developed in a legal, in law schools in the mm-hmm. 1980s. And it was this guy named Derek Bell and a few other people who were really kind of pushing back. And ironically, they always say it's Marxist. Well, actually, no, it's not Marxist. It was actually pushing back against Marxist thought. It was saying there was a, a movement within progressive legal scholars to say, we need to embrace Marxist theory. That's going to be what, what solves America's problems. And Derek mm-hmm. Bell, black man said, that's not going to solve America's problems. Marx was a white guy in a white community, in a white nation, in a white world. He didn't mm-hmm. have to deal with race. So anything you deal with there, you're talking about class. Okay, class is a part of it. But if you're not dealing with race, you're not going to solve anything in America because race goes back to the roots of American law. That's the whole theory. The theory is you cannot deal with who America is and the legal structure of America and help America to to become America without dealing with the legal constructs of race. As is, you know, I didn't even set out to do this, but in researching Fortune's life, we see this 1705, Mm -hmm. she's in that courtroom. And the law that shaped her family's life was developed in 1664. Mm-hmm. You know, we're mm-hmm. talking about about 30 years after the founding of the second colony ever, mm-hmm. right? And about 50 years after the founding of the first colony ever, Virginia. So in the very roots of who we are as a nation, race is there. It has to be dealt with. It, it has the power and has shaped whole people groups lives. That was the theory. So I was like, well, that's kind of a like, duh. Mm-hmm. So when you say you're going to ban critical race theory, what you're really saying is you're going to ban the teaching about who we are and how we got where we are. And you know what that does? It limits our capacity then to become better. Mm-hmm. It limits our capacity to get to the place where we can all flourish 
Isn't mm -hmm. that what we really want? Mm -hmm. Don't we want a world where we're all able to flourish? Mm -hmm. That is possible, mm -hmm. but it's not possible if we don't know how we got here. Mm -hmm. I love that. I have to ask you too. I really am very curious about, because a lot of the work that you do around this topic is in a faith community. It's mm -hmm. in churches, it's with faith leaders. Yeah. And I would love to hear more about how you view perhaps the difference between talking about these issues with perhaps a more secular audience versus a faith community. Well, I think that it's just really important that people of faith struggle with these questions, wrestle with these questions. You trace race all the way back to Plato. I mean, in my, in my research, I was able to trace it back to Plato. 360 BC, Plato comes up with this concept called race. And he says, race is the different metals that different people groups are made of. So he says, gold people, you know, serve society in this way. Silver people serve society in that way, copper in that way and whatever. And there's, it's debatable about whether or not there was hierarchy there. But 10 years later, his acolyte, Aristotle, comes up with actual hierarchy of human belonging. He says, if a group has been conquered, it has shown itself that it was supposed to be, it was created to be enslaved, right? And scholars pretty much agree that back in his day, what they would have seen as a full human being is someone who is white like them, male like them, and able-bodied like them. So then you, you know, flash forward about a thousand years and you get Pope Nicholas V. And Pope Nicholas V, again, the church. Pope Nicholas V says to a family friend who's going to go exploring, sure, you can go exploring and I'll give you a blessing. And here's what I'll do. I'll, give, I'll do you one better. If you come across land that is not civilized or Christian, then you can claim that land for the throne and enslave its people. So we actually literally get the entire world as we know it, the colonized world as we know it today, from that edict. It became the legal basis that we established North America, South America, United States. I mean, the whole thing, that is the legal basis. It became known as the doctrine of discovery. And so that's not the end of it, though. In Fortune's Day, the church becomes the manager of the oppression of the image of God on earth, the one that keeps the records and enforces whether or not someone is going to be enslaved or indentured. Mm -hmm. And that is the case all the way through until the Revolutionary War. And then in the antebellum period, half of the church broke off from itself, like literally every denomination in America split over the question of slavery. So mm -hmm. while you had half of these denominations supported abolition, the other half said, no, enslavement is fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Slavery is fine. And then they tried to, to justify it through the scripture. You know, we have work to do in the church. We have been part and parcel of the problem. We have been at the center of the construction of this thing called race in the world. And it's our theologies that either have entrenched it or who have that have not spoken a word about it. And so therefore let it happen. Are you finding that churches are resistant to doing that work? No, I'm actually finding that the majority, the middle of the church, and certainly um, those who have already been working in this area for many decades, that we are very much at the place where we know something's wrong 
and we need to fix it. Mm-hmm. And if there's no greater evidence for that, there's nothing else that is prompting the church to, to figure out what is wrong with us. It is the fact that we have young people streaming from our churches. Mm-hmm. Like they are just not coming in. They see the lack of integrity. They see the fact that what we've been preaching is not working. And it, it's working to get us the kind of politics, the kind of conversations about how we should be living together that are permeating our everyday lives today. So when I talk about politics, I'm not talking about partisanship. I'm talking about the question of how do we live together in the world? And we've made decisions and we are making decisions about how we live together in the world right now. And it is, unfortunately, it's those people who might likely spend the most time in those churches in that part that never hears from me, right? Mm-hmm. That they're the ones who are, who are making a decision about how we live together in the world that is according to bowing to the power of the hierarchies of human belonging that fortune mm-hmm. had to deal with in 1705. Mm. How do I not make this podcast 11 hours long, Lisa? I have so many <laughs> things that I, want, that, I want, that I want to talk about. The only answer is that you're going to have to come back if you would be willing to do that. Oh my gosh, I, I have would love so to. many things that I would love to talk about. And I really want to encourage people to read this book. It's called Fortune. And I love that you end the book with how to repair it all. Oh, yeah. And I want to have you come back and have a, a deeper conversation about that so we can give it the time that it deserves. But this has been just an absolutely, I treasure this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your labor in educating the rest of us for being willing to step up to the plate and do that. And the, the inordinate amount of time that you put into researching this story that can then benefit the rest of us. I'm so grateful for that and tell everybody where they can follow you, where they can find you, all that good stuff. So they can go out and buy your book fortune. Thank you so much, Sharon. I really appreciate that. Folks can follow me online um, at um, lisasharonharper.com. That's the place. It's kind of like the one-stop shop. You can find everything there. If you want to go directly to social media, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And by the end of the year, I'll be on TikTok too. Great place for <laughs> yes. me. I'm a little scared for TikTok, but I'm, I'm willing to go there. Yes. Uh, but definitely, definitely check out Fortune at fortunebook.us. So mm. fortunebook.us. We have a, a video journal that you can actually use to kind of work through the book on your own or in small groups. It's, it's an opportunity for us all, all of us to grow and to move forward. If you want to move forward, here's how to do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And it starts with telling the truth. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Truly. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Sharon Says So podcast. I am truly grateful for you. And I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave me a rating or a review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All of those things help podcasters out so much. This podcast was written and researched by Sharon McMahon and Heather Jackson. It was produced by Heather Jackson, edited and mixed by our audio producer, Jenny Snyder, and hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. I'll see you next time.